0: Hi there, this is Robert Green, and you're listening to Kleptocracy and Corruption, Afghanistan. In today's episode, we are joined by VP and Chief of Staff at BARD College, Malia Dumont. Malia is an award-winning senior executive and national security professional with expertise in strategic planning and organizational management in federal government, academia, and the private sector. Malia is an expert on Afghanistan, having served as a United States Army Reserve Officer for 19 years director of strategy for the office of Undersecretary of Defense action officer for CT strategy under the Joint Chiefs of Staff and senior Afghan Afghanistan analyst for the US European command Malia thank you for coming on the podcast I've been looking forward to you joining us for a while now and I'm sure my listeners are going to be as grateful as I am to get some of your insight so Great. before we get thank, into you, our, thank you before we get into our conversation I um, how about you just tell the audience a little bit about yourself? And, you know, when I was looking at your LinkedIn, I was really interested in how you got your MPP from Harvard and then you joined the Army shortly after. So what was your motivation to serve?
1: I actually, so I'm glad you noticed that. Um, so I actually joined the Army Reserve um, when I started my MPP program. Um, I skipped orientation uh, at Harvard to go down to the military enlisted, what's it called, the MEPS. I don't there are too many ac- military acronyms in the world. I don't remember what they all stand for, but I went down to the MEPS on the first day of orientation at Harvard and um, enlisted in the Army Reserve. And my motivation at that time was um, I had, as you probably also noticed, um, I've been living in China for a couple years. Um, and my, my last experience in China before I left the country was working in the Defense Attaché office, I had never previously had any experience with the U.S. military. I don't come from a military family, um, but I already knew I wanted to follow a career in national security. And then I met all these people who had made it their career, um, not just as an academic thing, but as a lifestyle and living in an authoritarian place like China and then working side by side with these um, really inspiring um, U.S. military people who had dedicated their lives to these ideals of upholding freedom and democracy was very inspiring to me and I'd been thinking about perhaps joining the military um, but spending time with them really convinced me that it was the right thing to do um, as an American as someone who cares about um, you know freedom and democracy around the world um, and I, I don't want anyone to think I'm some naive person who you know thinks that uh, the military that's all they do um, but for me, I, it was very important for me personally to raise my hand, take that oath of office, and say, "I'm basically, I'm willing to give my life to support the Constitution of the United States." Um, and so that's why I joined. And here yeah, we are. It's twenty. It's actually, I've been an officer. I transitioned to becoming an officer, um, so I've actually been in the Army Reserve twenty two years now. I never oh, expected wow. <laughs> to be in so long.
0: That is inspiring. So one reason I was so excited that you agreed to come on the podcast is because. Throughout my series, I focused a lot on policy from a top-down perspective, but I haven't gotten a lot of perspective from someone who actually implemented policy and worked on strategy in Afghanistan. So Mm. I'm really intrigued to learn about um, your experiences on the ground in Afghanistan during that uh, your deployment that you had.
1: Right. Um, so that was in 2006, 2007. I, w- I spent a year, um, in Kabul. I was working at, um, what we call the theater headquarters. Um, so when I, it was a very interesting time to be there because when I arrived, it was still, um, what we call a US um, led mission. Um, and then during my year there, it transitioned over so that the commanding general, um, was not a, a U.S. person, um, but was, um, from what we called the International Security Assistance Force, which was a NATO-led coalition. Um, And so that was um, part of an effort to bring more allies in um, and have allies take more of a leading role. The the U.S. um, had the same level of troops, in fact, increased their troop levels even after the transition to ISAF leadership. So it didn't mean that the U.S. was sort of stepping back, but it was trying to bring more allies in. So that was um, one of the one of the key things that I worked on when I was there, I I was not there as a policy person. I was there as an intelligence analyst. Um, So my job in the theater headquarters, that's a really interesting place to be an analyst um, because your work is directly um, informing the senior leaders who are making decisions. So in my case, that meant every day I worked on, um, I I wrote various papers, but I, I created the daily intelligence brief for the commanding general. Um, and that was um, a pretty hefty <laughs> responsibility to have. It was fascinating, um, but sort of being behind the scenes and seeing how the information that I gathered and analyzed informed the decision makers um, was um, was interesting. One of the things that became really clear during that year was how much the insurgency was um, moving back and forth across the border with Pakistan. Um, and so a lot of the work I did was understanding um how that happened, um, and just getting a better picture of what the overall strategic um, situation of, of the insurgency was.
0: Yeah, I think um, that's a great like point you bring up about the insurgency moving in between Afghanistan and Pakistan. So I feel like a lot of people, when they're looking at this conflict, they kind of have tunnel vision and don't realize that it wasn't just focused, like, say, in one place in Afghanistan, but it was spreading throughout the region, and you have to give the U.S. military and government a little bit of leeway in saying that it, you know, it was a really difficult, difficult thing to tackle, and you having to do those every single day and then the uh, leadership having to digest that, it just speaks to how complicated your guys' jobs were.
1: Yeah, and anyone who's interested in insurgency, I mean, one of the one of the hallmarks of insurgency anywhere is they always have some kind of external safe haven. Otherwise they can't continue. Um, And I'm not making a value judgment on whether insurgencies in general are good or bad, but that's just how they tend to operate. And so in this case it was Pakistan. Um, There's obviously a lot of prior um, academic work and analysis on insurgencies was done around uh, the Vietnam war and, um, and how the, sort of the open border with, with Laos affected that. Um, so we, there, this is the case, um, in insurgencies writ large, um, around the world that there's always some kind of place that they're able to, um, you know, retreat to or, um, or be fortified from.
0: So when you're in Afghanistan, were there certain things that surprised you when you were there that if you had a, you know, a preconception of what it was going to be like, and then were any of those just, you know, shattered once you got there or, was it kind of what you expected?
1: Um, I didn't know what to expect. Um, let's see. I I didn't realize, I didn't know exactly what my job was going to be until I got there. I literally was just, I wasn't sent with my unit. Some people, they, they go as part of an entire unit and they know what their unit mission is. Um, like I had a friend who's in a helicopter unit. The entire helicopter unit went, they knew what their job was. They knew that where they were going to be serving. I went as an individual um, and so all I knew was that I was going somewhere in Kabul, and I didn't know where it was going to be or what the exact job was until I got there, um, which was a little bit nerve wracking. It's like get on this plane to the war zone, and then you know you'll figure it out. Um, yeah. The job was was great. Um, I, I mean, it was it was fascinating. It it was interesting, um, and it felt really important. Um, I guess what. Surprised me, especially at the beginning, was I didn't know I was going to be living right in the middle of Kabul, Um, and this is a a a busy, dynamic, um, you know, noisy, crowded city. And um, at least at that point, I don't know about right now, but there wasn't enough housing for all of us who worked at the base where I worked. There wasn't enough housing there for us to live there. So the U.S. military, this still is crazy to me, um, rented houses in the neighborhood nearby. So I lived in a rental house um, that was uh, like 10 other U.S. military people that was guarded by Tajiks with AK-47s. Um, there was about maybe a mile from the base. And um, we were at when I first arrived, we were, Kabul was considered safe enough that we could walk to work through the cities, through the city streets of Kabul, which I only did once because I felt so uncomfortable about it, um, but for the most part, I had to, I, we rode a little shuttle bus um, that was driven by an Afghan guy who didn't speak English, and I would just get out of bed in the morning, put my uniform and my you know everything, my my helmet, my um, my flak jacket, and climb into this minivan <laughs> driven by an Afghan wow. guy who then drove me through the streets of Kabul to get to work. It was. It was so strange. Um, so I wasn't prepared for that aspect of it. Um, wow.
0: Yeah, <laughs> that and then the, and then the Tajiks uh, guarding the house. That is that's something I didn't expect to hear. Wow. So that makes me think of you know later on in the war when there's a huge surge of troops and everything. I just wonder logistically how they were able to, you know, take that on. If at yeah. that time they didn't even have enough space for you guys.
1: Well, so I was at a very, the, the theater headquarters, I mean, it sounds, it is big and important, but um, in terms of the number of people in a headquarters, it's not as big as you have out in the various, um, the provinces where the troops are actually engaged in fighting. I mean, in, in Kabul, it's it's people at with desk jobs. You know, that I, I never, aside from, you know, walking through the streets of Kabul to get to work, my job was sitting at a desk at a computer and that's what people in headquarters do. Um, So the surge didn't happen necessarily in Kabul. It was at all the different bases. So Mm. you probably heard of Bagram. Um, I mean, Bagram is is an enormous military city. And they could put up more tents or more barracks buildings, you know, overnight if they needed to. So it wasn't a problem for those bases to absorb additional troops. That's what they were meant to do.
0: So um, going back to working with, you know, commanders that are from NATO, did that um, influence at all your your the change in your career path? then when you worked in the European Command at all, from you know having that experience with people already who were oh, yeah. Allied forces?
1: Well, I wouldn't have had that job if I hadn't been in Afghanistan. Um, so all the work I did in Afghanistan, um, you know, I was writing this big brief every day in all kinds of papers, and my name was on it, and so it would go out around the entire U.S. intelligence community. Um, and so people started to know who I was, which I didn't realize until um, they sent me to a conference halfway through my time in Afghanistan. It was very weird. I had to fly to Charlottesville, Virginia <laughs> to present a, um, uh, a briefing about Afghanistan to um, a bunch of uh, a bunch of U.S. military who were about to deploy. It was part of like their preparation. So I, I flew in there, and while I was there, someone who was already working at the U.S. European Command came up to me. and was like, hey, we really like your work. We'd like you to come work with us. So, the, um, so technically, I was assigned. Once I left Afghanistan, um, I changed my reserve affiliation, and I became assigned to the U.S. European Command, even though I never physically went there. It was just um, sort of a bureaucratic thing I had to do in order to work um, at the NATO base, Um, Because the U.S. European Command, um, they just maintained the paperwork and sort of the the administrative uh, control over the U.S. soldiers who are at the NATO base. So I never went there, but I went to NATO um, and I lived in Brussels, uh, not in Brussels, but um, in a town near Brussels um, for a year. And um, there there was um, and I worked in a U.S. specific organization that was um, providing U.S. intelligence to the commanding general of NATO, who is a, a U.S. person. Now, he also had a NATO intelligence group, which had U.S. soldiers in it, but it was like a NATO group. And there are different kinds of intelligence that you can see depending on where you're sitting. So the U.S. group was providing him certain things, and then the NATO group was providing him certain things. And um, I mean, they, it's not that they contradicted each other, it's just, you know, slightly different sources. And um, so that's what I was working on um, in Afghanistan. And certainly, um you know, the fact that I had just got out of Afghanistan was really helpful. I was basically doing the same kind of work, exactly the same kind of work as I'd done in Afghanistan. It was just the commanding general I was working for was in Belgium instead of uh, in theater.
0: Very interesting. So um, part of many of the people that are going to be part of my audience are people like myself who are students and are maybe trying to pursue careers in intelligence or national security. So what were some of the most important skills that you felt really helped you in those two roles that you had with intelligence?
1: So that's um, that's a very important question, and it's actually a pretty easy one to answer. And people think that this is oversimplified, but it's absolutely true. You have to know how to write well. That's the bottom line. You have to know how to write well. Um, there's, there's no way I would have been asked to go to NATO. Um, and then the jobs I had after that, it's like people most of the jobs I've had in the 10 years, the past 10 years, are people saw my work and then invited me (laughs) to come work for them. Um, And that all comes back to um, literally my undergraduate experience here at Bard College. I didn't learn how to write in high school. Um, I learned how to write here in college. And um, I never expected all the various ways it would serve me. But when you're um, informing senior leaders about, really, you know, hugely consequential decisions and um, situations. You have to be clear, concise, um, be able to um, convey subtleties and complexities. And um, the vast majority of my job was, what I had to do that through writing. And I spent, that that's what I was doing in my computer all day, all night, sometimes on night shift. I was reading reports and then I was um, figuring out how to, um, how to, uh, you know, c- convey the, the gist of what was in them or, or the overall situation that they, they portrayed. Um, and most of that's through writing. Some of it was through, um, you know, orally delivered briefings. Um, but even if you're giving a brief orally, you have to write it first. So I, th- I think that's the best advice I can give a lot of young people who are interested in careers in analysis or policymaking. You have to know how to write well.
0: Yeah, I think any of my professors that are going to listen to this episode <laughs> are going to be very happy to hear that. Because, um, you know, that's even something when I've been doing graduate applications and sending and writing samples. And like you're saying, that has been the t- number one thing people are looking for, that ability mm-hmm. to convey information.
1: Yeah. And I'll just say it's it's. um so I learned a certain kind of writing at the undergraduate level, like longer research papers, and that's very helpful. Um, what I learned in graduate school is a different kind of writing, and that's more policy-focused writing, where you rarely have the opportunity to, uh, for more than two pages. Like, you know, when I was working in the Pentagon, um, uh, I remember one time I got an assignment um, from my boss. He's like, we have to, um, the, the new national security strategy was about to come out. Before it was published publicly, we wanted to tell the Secretary of Defense, like, what is this all about? This is a pretty big, complex document. She says, you need to write a one-page summary of what this national security strategy conveys. Um, And that sounds crazy. You're like, how could you possibly get across the important things but um but you can if if you have the right analytical mindset and you know how to write concisely and w- so i didn't have to like go through the list of what's what is everything that's mentioned in this national security strategy the gist of it was this this document attempts to help america maintain its leadership position in the world you know that was that was the main point of the whole thing and then you know there are certain sub themes to that but um we you're writing concisely for a policy audience forces you to step back a little bit and look at the bigger picture of what you know what's actually happening and not just you know list <laughs> i know there's often a temptation in research papers You're like i gotta get to 20 pages on yeah, this you know, I'm information
0: gonna... in. yeah
1: and and in policy and intelligence it's often the opposite it's um you have to fit this in um two pages or less
0: very interesting so um could you tell me a little bit about the regional interagency coordination group when I was like looking at that, that was something that, you know, really struck me kind of, because I've heard so much about interagency communication, you know,
1: Mm -hmm. being
0: very difficult and plagued with disconnect. So if you could just tell me a little bit about your experience with that.
1: Yeah. So that, um, there are many, many different interagency groups. That one sounds like it's like sort of big and comprehensive and covers the waterfront, but that actually had a specific mission that was related to counterterrorism. And so there were five different interagency groups working on um, a larger counterterrorism issue. Um, One of them was called countering violent extremism, and that was more um, like public communications focused. The regional interagency coordination group was led by the state department actually, um, and then I uh, uh, led the, the, the Department of Defense um, representation that participated in that group. And um, a lot of what we did was looking at um, how to help um, people in country, like how to help, for example, embassies across northern Africa um, take a regional approach to coordinating um, with each other, and, and embassies are not just State Department. I mean, every government agency is represented in, in various embassies. So, how could embassies within a certain region coordinate with each other um, to make sure they're staying aware of, of uh, terrorism issues, um, that they are feeding that information up, um, you know, to the interagency in DC, and that they're getting the tools they need. Um, so that that's what that was about. And it was uh, it was my first time um, working. In the interagency, in that way, um, it was it was really fascinating. Um, later, I sat on a couple of national security staff um, committees, and that's the, the true interagency. It's not um, you know, it's not sort of in service of a, of a single mission. Um, and so, the national security staff is really where um, the highest level interagency coordination takes place, and it's um, it's tough. It's it's really difficult when you have um, such a large bureaucracy. And sometimes even things that you might think are simple are really tough. Like the word "risk" um, is such a broad word, um, but it means very specific things in different contexts. And depending what agency you're from, it might mean something completely different to you than it does to someone else. So how can how can the U.S. government think strategically about risk if if we can't even agree on what it means?
0: You know, that's, yeah, and I, I guess always, that comes. I guess that sorry. comes back to what you were saying about you know, really having that analytical mindset and being able to convey to someone what that risk is versus just saying such and such is at risk, like being able to convey that information to them properly and and in a format that they, that relates to what they're doing.
1: Right. And at the policy level, you're often talking about strategic trade-offs. It's not like um, a credit card company that that knows what (laughs) the risk is of you not paying your credit card down to, you know, 0.1 percentage point. Um, it's, you, you can't do that. Um, with policy so we think of strategic trade-offs instead like if we prioritize the middle east um then what happens in the Asia pacific you know like and and what are the um there's a lot of foresight involved with it which is really fascinating
0: very interesting um did you ever have any experience working with military contractors and if so what was that like because you know just talking to different types of people who one of my professors they're um their family member was a military contractor. And he said in his experience, he was just blown away by the extravagant amount of money that was being invested in Afghanistan. And mm. he was almost just not prepared for what that was like.
1: Well, so I was a military contractor for a while. Um, I, um, that was after I got back from Afghanistan. Um, Cause it can be, it's, it's really hard often to get a government job. You know, um, I wanted to work in the Pentagon and the fastest way to get into the Pentagon was to get a contract job. Um, and I was sitting in the Pentagon working alongside people who were government people um, doing the exact same kind of work with a few exceptions because the law prevented me from representing the Department of Defense. Um, so the Regional Interagency Coordination Work Workgroup, um, Coordination... Group work that I did. Um, I did that when I was in uniform. Um, That was at a different time period. I wasn't able to do things like that um, when I was a contractor. I mean, I could participate in the group, but I couldn't lead it. You know, I couldn't testify in front of Congress. I couldn't release a statement on behalf of um, the government. So there are limitations on the work. Um, uh, I I did some work um, with contractors when I was in um, Afghanistan, but for the most part, um, not at all. I mean, I was in a 99% 99% military, um, environment. Um, was money poured into Afghanistan? Absolutely. Um, it's, it can, you know, I, I can't speak to <laughs> whether it was well spent or not in every case. Um, and it's, um, you know, a lot of times when, when emergencies happen, the government tries to, you know, turn the, the money faucet on and, and, um, and then afterwards you realize not everyone had a good intention with the money that became available. Um, but for the most part, I mean, you know, our, our government couldn't function without contractors because uh, the bureaucracy is, in many cases, so slow moving. Yeah. It took two years for me to transition into a government position.
0: Oh, wow. So, you know, coming back briefly to, or coming to the present, last summer, what was your reaction to the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan from the standpoint of someone who had invested, you know, a portion of their career in that project. Yeah,
1: yeah it was, um, I was actually, I was on duty in um, in South Korea at the time. So I, like when, when everything sort of fell apart. So I, and I was very, I was working 12 hour shifts uh, um, during a, a war game over there. So I um, wasn't following every minute of what happened. Um, but um, after I came back, what I was, I mean, certainly I was concerned about, um, Yeah, how how the withdrawal took place. But I was, as an Afghanistan veteran, what affected me more was was just the feeling that um, the American people never really understood why we were there, what we were doing. And I saw a level of um, despair in the American veteran community. I'm very involved um, in Veterans Affairs too, um, that I hadn't seen in years just because it, it... out of nowhere, this became a major news story. And then it's like every American became an armchair quarterback. And um, that, can, that can feel um, really demoralizing and kind of disrespectful uh, to those of us who spent years and years of our lives yeah, dedicated to definitely. this. And all of a sudden – you know, you're seeing news stories like, Oh my God, there was a rocket attack on the Kabul airport as if that's new news. I'm like, we had rocket attacks almost every day. Like where you you haven't been paying attention to the fact that we have been risking our lives for this for 20 years. Um, so it just laid bare a level of ignorance, um, which yeah. it's, it's easy for Americans to be ignorant about all the places the, the military goes in the world or the ways that, you know, were used. But, um, what I've been trying to emphasize um, uh, since then, because uh, it's just made me more aware of how important this is, is that you know those of us who are in uniform, we, we are here to serve the American people and support and defend the Constitution. And when we get sent somewhere, we get sent in your name. You know you, you're an Ameri- I assume you're an American citizen, yeah. you know, you're a voting person. Like that's I'm going there because whether you know it or not, you sent me there. And so I just, I guess maybe I'll just end uh, this uh, by saying like Americans, it's very important for Americans to understand the responsibility they have to stay informed about um, how the military in particular is used, because these are people who are choosing to risk their lives um, and ordinary citizens should be aware of that and um, shouldn't take that responsibility lightly.
0: Yeah. that's one of the main goals of this podcast is to really, you know, open up people's eyes to uh, the past 20 years and hopefully help them commit to doing what you're saying in the future and really being active citizens and looking at that. So thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It was great to get your perspective of some, and from someone that lived and worked in Afghanistan and has been thoroughly involved in the project. And most of all, thank you for your service. Um, I really appreciate it as I hope all the uh, viewers and people will. So Thank you so much.
1: Thank you, Robert. Have a great afternoon.
0: You too.